I'm Ellen from Malaysia. Uh, 36 hours to get here, but very, very ecstatic. Um, kind of sad I don't get to see the Golden Gate Bridge a little bit, but I'm glad that I'm here with you all. Um, from Malaysia, I'm an independent impact facilitator. I've worked in government, NGOs, I've been an entrepreneur, um, but now I work really, um, or actually stay and live in with uh, rural communities around Southeast Asia. Um, so my neighboring countries are where I would focus my um, work in. So let me just very quickly grab the clicker. Now, um, who's, who's in the impact world, if I may have a show of hands? Hi, Akash. Ah, Kiva! Oh, I want to talk. Um, <laughs> It's, it's really hard because back in Southeast Asia, we do have access to some really great international organizations or lean practitioners, but the knowledge kind of gets diluted as it moves away from the source, which is around here. So I'm really excited to be here. Um, so as an impact facilitator, independent, without an NGO, what I do is I actually live uh, with the rural communities around Southeast Asia and now in Nepal as well. Um, so I live a very minimal lifestyle. What we're going to talk about today is looking past biases uh, in order to know what kind of matrix or measures to use as we move along our work. And I'm going to be highlighting one particular case study which has kind of become my school of social entrepreneurship. And, oh, just by the way, that's my Twitter handle, ID, in case anyone wants to tweet. Um, I'd love new friends. So, coming back to my region, um, in Indonesia, when the tsunami hit about almost 10 years ago, come December 26, um, you heard of Sri Lanka being affected, Phuket, um, Penang, Malaysia, where I'm from. But the highest scale of devastation, I'm sorry if I'm blocking you guys, highest scale of devastation was in Aceh, Indonesia, circled right there on your left. Now, Aceh is one of the 34 provinces in Indonesia with about 5 million population. Now before tsunami hit them, um, about 40% were below poverty line. So I was in Singapore on sabbatical um, when my tech um, company got invested in and just kind of chilling out until we heard the news about this and they're right next door. So what happened was there weren't much news about Aceh going on and because they were the closest, I thought, okay, no, I'm no specialist, I'm, I'm just um, a humble entrepreneur, um, not a doctor, not an engineer, I probably would cause more harm than good, but I want to be able to see what I could do. So I switched over to, to Aceh and what I found out was really heartbreaking. These are the numbers or stats that would kind of freak out some people, but what really, ha what I think a lot of us tend to forget is that the numbers that are left or the numbers that had to deal with reconstruction post um, natural disasters like this are people that we kind of need to be able to localize aid for. We've heard about some conflicts in Haiti or um, how you know, even aid could get wasted uh, through you know, non-collaborative efforts. So, being in Aceh and being able to blend in as one of them, what really helped was the solidarity of being a Southeast Asian. Um, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had, so that kind of worked to its my uh, advantage. No expectations. Um, 
no like very clear assumptions other than the fact that I'm an entrepreneur and maybe what I could do is kind of tackling some of the social issues as much as I could. So some of these numbers like hectares, I know you, you use different measures and so let me know if you're not quite sure. So more than 100,000 uh, lives were killed. Locally in actually they estimated more than 200,000. Um, but those those who are missing, it's never been found or never really been able to collect data on. And more than 600,000 people were displaced. Now, coming post uh, December 26, World Bank discovered, okay, so before 40% were below poverty line. After, they've kind of estimated about more than 50%. But any, the total estimate is about 60 to 70%. So a lot of them lived on traditional economies or, or income, so livestock rearing, fisheries, and agriculture. Um, coming into this, though, what I want to do is just a little exercise, and, and we do have some post-its, but I know we might run out of time, and we want to, to keep track to it. Um, if you guys could just look over to your neighbors and, and kind of partner up into small groups for the next 10 to 15 minutes, Kind of figure out if you were in Aceh, like, and, and you had been presented um, out of the list of issues that, that you want to contribute or add value to, what would that be? Now, in Aceh, because poverty was the most obvious one, that was something that I thought I'd you know, try a base of superhero on. Um, so let's convert you guys into 15 minute superheroes for a bit. Um, and what I'd like to hear after this 15 minutes are perhaps thoughts or answers to three questions. If you could just note this down, I apologize, I don't have it on the slide. So one would be, what would, if you were to tackle the issue of poverty, what would be the thoughts that cross um, your mind? What would be the first thing you would do? And um, what would be maybe three things you would love to know before you proceed on doing impact in tackling the issue of poverty. So maybe for the next 10, 15 minutes, if you could just very quickly huddle uh, with your neighbors and kind of think about these three questions. So one would be, what would you do? <laughs> Marry into your neighbors for a bit. Um, there's some post-its here if anyone wants anything. And then what happens after the 10 or 15 minutes? What happens after the 10 or 15 minutes? Um, you know, a representative could just share your feedback. Yeah, it doesn't matter the size of your group, just, um, i just love to know what that would be. Okay, so if you found your group, if I may very quickly just recap the three questions. So one would be, what would be the first, uh, what would be the thoughts you, that, that would cross your mind? First question. Two, what would you do? Like what would be the first few things you would do? And uh, third, what would be the things you would want to know before you proceed on doing any work on it? Got that? Thank you. <laughs> 
Hi guys, so you have about a minute and a half. So, final question for us, uh, one Sorry, uh, what do we want to know before we start uh, doing this? So, if you were to tackle the issue of poverty in Indonesia, um, as a developing country, um, what thoughts would have crossed your mind? What would you do, like, or, or what would be the first few things you would do, or what would what ideas or solutions you might come up with for this issue? Um, and what do you know? Uh, what would you like to know, or what you don't already know that you'd like to have answers to? So, let's very quickly just have, like, I know this quite a number of groups, so let's try and have maybe eight groups. But what's, what I do need a favor um, from you is, as you leave later on, I've kind of stick all of these questions up on the wall on the right side of the exit door um, in the front here. So as you walk out, if you could put up your post-its, that I will bring all of them home. Just, you know, I'm sure there's some ideas that we still have not thought of yet, so this is kind of me crowdsourcing the ideas and solutions on the way home. Um, okay, so let's start from the back to the front. Um, anyone wants to volunteer representative from different groups? Yeah, thoughts or feedback on, on these three? Uh, so what would be the first, like say you're stuck in the middle of Indo Aceh, Indonesia, what would be the first, and tackling the issue of poverty, what would be the first thoughts that crosses your mind? So this is more human, this is more, I want to have a feel of where you guys would be at. Um, what would be the thoughts that cross your mind? Second question is, what would you do or ideas or solutions that you may have for the communities there to, on the issue of poverty alleviation um, or elimination? Um, what would you want to know is the third question. You know? um, and this is quite broad, I understand. This could be broken down to um, what do you not already know that you would need to have data or knowledge on before you proceed. So those are the three. Or we could start just from the front to the middle. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Um, we, well, we didn't necessarily go in order. We realized the first thing we needed to know is how to understand the 
survey of um, local people just asking them what is keeping them in poverty and if we could help um, what they allow us to Sorry, what was the second, the latter part of your statement? If they... Oh, okay. Anyone else? Sorry, I can't hear you from I apologize. You'd observe what their day would look like? Anyone else? There were a lot of energy around here. Okay. <laughs> well, we said, um, you, I mean, our first thoughts are basically, you know, what are the critical needs, but also what are the critical threats? What, what, what's, what's threatening um, removing the resources they have?
then it's about finding a structure, how to grow and rebuild a community, right? And there, that's kind of then probably the debate, uh, how to do that, like incentivize the leader, uh, microcredits, you know, whatever concepts there are, but uh, I think the first need needs to be solved to grow or rebuild. Okay, so just to sum up very quickly, um, uh, what's keeping folks in poverty? And if we were to go in and aid, would the local communities allow us to? The thoughts being overwhelmed. Um, questions that crosses our mind would be what, what would poverty looks like? Uh, what are the current resources, the aid that's going on in the environment? What are the needs and threats? Is it safe? Um, how quickly could I could we educate folks on the, the aid or contribution that we're trying to put in, um, especially if it's on basic needs, keeping them healthy, and then there was a suggestion about finding a leader and helping those leaders first, and then kind of uh, widen that that impact uh, outwards. Um, except for what does poverty looks like, we did all the rest, everything else. So I'm I'm gonna share with you. And I know that we only had like 10 minutes to save the world, kind of. But those, like very quickly, whatever that you're feeling or questioning um, are the fundamental ones that you would experience as you were to do impact work, roughly. Those are fundamental questions that will keep with you. Um, and, and I'm glad that the, the question of what does poverty looks like comes up because most of the time, uh, aid organization, as much as with great intention, it's not as localized to the needs of the communities, right? We see that. So, yeah, going in, my friends and I, my friends, when I mention my friends, is the local communities and the community managers, volunteers on the ground. So we did everything. Um, we had initiatives going in, so from evacuation of body, which addresses basic sanitation, um, you know, um, keeping away the, the um, corpses out of, um, you know, the sewage area because we were afraid of plague. So having that kind of first wave of, of needs done, we were looking at, okay, so how could we move on to the next one, right? How could we slowly tackle this issue, this big issue of poverty? We did not ask, I guess, ask ourselves what poverty looks like because we were already on the field. Um, but that does come with assumptions, like we go in and we see a, a really bad shack and we think, okay, they're poor, right? So initiatives that, that we did from 2005 to 2009, and, and uh, please have this known that um, it was all self-funded by yours truly, so that's quite a bit of, of work. Um, we did competency development, so what that means is that uh, we really went into trying to figure out how could we upscale or rescale some of the local communities to complement the work or to, to kind of amplify the work of aid organizations. Um, we did adult education, so literacy and all of that kind of stuff because we think, you know, education is important and this might help in alleviating poverty in the long term. Uh, we talked about women empowerment because a lot of women there um, suffered a loss when their husbands uh, were killed um, because of tsunami and just before tsunami there was that major earthquake. Um, and then entrepreneurship development. So that cost about, in those five years, 150,000 uh, US dollars. Now you break that, you divide that by 3.4, that's the currency back home in Malaysia. Um, we did 
really, we had really great impact. So we, we addressed or we reached out to three provinces and that's about 200,000 lives. That's about 200,000 people. Uh, we, because we were already on the field, we knew that we needed to make use of the indigenous resources, uh, the local resources. So we did check out what were available around us, uh, infrastructure developments, so schools, uh, makeshift hospitals, clinics, that kind of thing. We had a lot of media visibility because instead of aid organizations, these were the locals you know, being mobilized and doing this. Uh, the economy was closed up uh, until then, and cross-province health application. So we did all of that. But we didn't cause a dent in increasing income per household. Not at all. So after about five years, um, you know, I felt, this is cool. We, we did all of this impact, we reached all of these lives, we had all of this other stuff, until this man came up to me, uh, a man that I met about five years going back, he, um, talking to him and he said, this is great work you're doing. Um, so how do I get my, you know, how do I then have salary? How do I get uh, revenue into the household? Because you be all of this other stuff, which were bonuses, but we didn't address the core, the core mission at all. I was completely devastated. Um, I thought, you know, here I thought, yay, superhero, with the locals, empowerment, woohoo epic fail, right? Completely, completely just flattened me out. Um, and then I asked him, okay, so what didn't work? Because we had international uh, aid experts coming in and giving us advice. I was a project manager and entrepreneur. We followed all the steps. On paper, it was beautiful. Here, it didn't cause any like impact revenue-wise. We did everything else, but we didn't um, you know, stick to our purpose. So we got kind of lost along the way. Um, so what happened was, and I know uh, you use this as a form of saying getting out of the building, we were already in the field, so I thought that was a major advantage, but coming in as a project manager, as an entrepreneur, I was thinking, okay, um, reduction of cost is a, is a measure of success, right? Uh, lives in, um, of, of, number of lives touched is a measure of success, uh, but it didn't align at all to our commission, like I've mentioned. So I thought, okay, um, after five years spending my own money on this, not really achieving anything, didn't achieve anything at all in terms of increasing income per household, I needed to kind of step out of the building in terms of that building was my mind, was my brain, was my head. I needed to step out of that and really experience how does this program really help or aid or what kind of negative consequence that all of these programs had on the local communities. Because now, with, with putting in funding or, or seemingly knowledgeable in doing reconstruction work or, or aid work like this, the locals tend to kind of fall into a beneficiary mindset and they don't want to disappoint you also, right? They don't want to um, have aid stop uh, or coming in or, or being completely off the radar from, from your line of sight. So they don't really say um, that it's not really working, or they don't know that it's not really working because they think you're doing all of this other stuff. They see progress, um, but just not increasing their own revenue. So what we did was, um, instead of the communities going through as participants of the program, we became the participants. Like the community managers, the locals uh, who were helping me to facilitate the program and I became the community or the participants. And then the community became the facilitators 
and external observers or assessors would then, all of us would then switch roles for about three times just to experience how everything goes for about, I think, six to eight months. So this went on for quite a bit um, because we had to switch roles. Now what happened after that was that we discovered, although yes, we were focusing on the natural disasters, but we forgot the war that's been happening to the land since the late 1800. So they've gone through three major conflicts. And during the time of tsunami, war was still going on. So Molotovs, bombings, I got stabbed, all sorts of adventures happened. So all of this was going on, but while we acknowledged that it was happening, we didn't consider the weight of it. So what came out of this, this little uh, experience was that we discovered three major patterns that was hindering uh, revenue growth. So one was social stigma, because out of those conflicts, um, mental illness, those who have mental illnesses, no matter how, how minor, um, were uh, ostracized or were isolated. Um, women, although they were warriors during these previous wars, they're still considered as um, not a primary caregivers of the society. Um, people were working on, because of all those conflicts, uh, daily survival instinct. So they kind of ceased to live for the future. Right? They're just thinking about how can I survive today or maybe tomorrow. Um, so whatever equipments, machineries that we were giving to, to have them farm better or harvest better, they sold it off for money. Um, just so that they could either put food on the table, pay off illegal loan sharks, or send their kids to whatever makeshift schools that were around them, or rebuild their homes, because they didn't want to go to those displaced camps. They wanted their own sense of ownership of their home. And then distrust, obviously, because in our program, what we, we didn't realize was a mix of former combatants of the conflict with their victims. Yeah. So when I mentioned epic fail, <laughs> um, so these things emerged from our little experiment um, experience. And, and I thought, okay, so what do I do now that I have all of this data and all past data that's been collected you know, by, uh, by uh, reviewing it with aid organizations? Um, none of us knew how to, to move forward. So I was, the epiphany was I was watching um, one episode of Friends. And there's one episode in Google, this, this was really um, quite an epiphany for me. Um, it's called The One Behind the Scenes, where they were reviewing or, or they were showing a team of 12 scriptwriters going through their dialogues um, for one episode for like two, three days, again and again and again and again. Um, and then if they stop laughing, then they go off, they go out and they talk to you know, the live audience. They'll have like a trial or a, a pilot of their script with the, a live audience. And then if it's still not working, then they get you know, the characters. I love Chandler. Uh, so Chandler would step in and say, okay, this is not working really. I know you're trying to, to deliver this message uh, or this impact um, or, or scale of laughter, but what about this? So that kind of really fast, shorter cycle of experimenting with the script was the one that, that kind of brought me to thinking, why can't I do this on the ground with the grassroots community? It's non-threatening. Um, it, it will engage uh, the communities on a continuous basis. We'd be able to immediately see the reaction on site of our participants or our beneficiaries um, and improve from there. So when you talk about rapid experimentation, this. <laughs> Friends was the one who kind of taught me that. Um, so that's, that's the name, Google it, it's on YouTube. Um, so moving forward, 
trying to take the principles from friends onto on-site, uh, we decided to kind of shift our values a little bit to uh, how we engage the community. And those coming from NGOs, you know, you kind of do the research bit in the earlier part, and then you kind of forget them until you have to monitor and assess them, right? Um, so we shift from looking at scale as a matrix to sustainability, so long-term impact. Scale, at this point, had become the enemy of sustainability. Um, instead of looking at revenue, we looked at social value. So instead of money or, or a dollar sign being the currency, trust became the currency of our project or our program. Um, look, instead of looking at reach, how could we create impact um, and, and see how it works in different uh, size over fast, uh, with a faster pace of time. Um, and instead of looking at the community as a beneficiary, we started to look at them as partners. Because while we were doing the, the previous um, experiment, we, just, we realized that you know, they know best what they need, even if they don't know how to say it, right? So through that, we learned this. Um, it was extremely empowering for all stakeholders. Um, and instead of judging or, or coming from an opinion, we started to just discard that and just focus on the intention or the mission of the project. So that caused a major shift and it helped us to reiterate again and again and again. And that's, that's when we came up with, um, sorry, let me just go through. That's when we came up with the first experiment. So on a smaller scale with a group of three former militants who were ostracized, what kind of experiment could we do with them um, to help them to be integrated and increase perhaps their income per household or revenue coming in on a daily or monthly basis. So what we did was, they only knew how to pillage, you know, they only knew all the really Rambo stuff going on, but what kind of skills can we equip them um, that would help them to achieve three things. So social acceptance is a major thing to help increase revenue. When people trust you, decide, when the villagers start to trust you, then they would buy your product. You know, if they talk to you, it's a sign of they might buy the product. Sorry, let me just go back. Um, and then if they buy your product, will they come again and, and, continue, and, and be a repeat customer? So we tried with about eight different skill sets from construction to agriculture to tailoring, yes, even for men, um, to, um, to um, sorry, um, being labor workers, I suppose, I don't know what you call them, or concierge, to aid organizations, so different skill sets um, for about one and a half weeks per skill. And then we measured them according to those three. Um, and then we had to look at, okay, um, out of all of the skill sets, which, which went to the highest interest of the men themselves, which worked towards the strength of each man, um, will they have the discipline to continue to um, use those skills to generate revenue, and would they get the support of the community? Because all of that plus combined together equals to the income increase. Um, and then conversations. So conversations became our matrix. The moment that people started talking to one another is when we knew that um, we'd be able to have repeat purchases, which equals to social acceptance, and again, which would increase uh, income or revenue per household. Um, so. Very quickly, lessons learned was that clearly defined mission became our anchor focus instead of trying to do everything. Um, shorter trial cycles, thank you friends for helping. 
Um, it's okay not to follow formula because at that point we, we kind of fetished over models and that kind of you know constrained us a lot. Uh, using indigenous resources also helped us to decrease costs. So the next very quickly um, experiment we did was with conflict victims. So those who had been the victims of the former militants. Um, we brought, we introduced an alternative income after the first experiment and we, we saw that the social acceptance to something that's slightly new, not too far-fetched, something familiar, working with agricultural waste around them to create paper-based products. And um, working in a concentric framework helped us to be able to increase the income per household. And again, instead of the 1.5 weeks, we went on this for about four weeks. So lessons learned from this is that community-centric program forces agility. It forces us as facilitators to be more agile and adept um, in order to remain relevant. We saw that communities became our living labs, right? Um, they were our walking, living um, feedback. You know, through the expressions, the words they used, the language that they conversed in, um, and who they conversed with. So. We took whatever lessons we did and we, t we went through this repeat cycle of test, measure, continue or change, I guess you call it pivot here, um, repeat and then scale. So, and even the scale is, is you know, incremental, uh, slowly. Um, and then we, we would come up with finally a little project which is called, well here it's called the MVP, um, where we will focus on instead of just going into, okay, increase revenue is the measure, um, trust became the measure, as I mentioned. So how do we rebuild that trust and value or appreciation of oneself, community, family, um, and the province uh, as a whole? And then immediately, because of that daily survival instinct, um, what kind of immediate solutions could the community see um, would help them increase revenue in order for them to to accept change without being threatened by it. Uh, and then finally, instead of thinking of what can we increase in terms of positive things about the program, how could we systematically reduce negative issues as a focus instead of you know, the other one. So that really helped um, with us working with the community. Um, and then from there, uh, we spent only up from the point of the epiphany, to 2012, we only spent 10,000 USD, and we increased a larger impact. Um, we achieved larger impact. So we achieved more than five provinces, that's about 800,000 lives. Um, we increased income, 80 US dollars per income per household per month. We saw that happening. Um, we regenerated education again, and allowed for um, informal education, more than formal education, anything that's more relevant to their lifestyle. Um, we looked at governance and empowerment, and we became a lot more helpful to the inter international aid organizations from this. Um, so the next steps is to know what the heck is innovation accounting, so that we'll be able to, to properly measure um, what we're doing from this uh, uh, step onwards, and how could we replicate community intuition. So all of the stuff that, that uh, we went through with the communities, the, the you know, kind of two and a half experiments, the communities kind of were already doing that per, per household. But it wasn't, it wasn't obvious to us. Um, it wasn't 
we thought that as beneficiaries, we'd be able to go in and coordinate or, or, or be the assessor or facilitate, but it, it became that they became our teachers. Um, so how do we convert community intuition to something that's more applicable and could work uh, in other areas? So if you want to measure the right matrix, I guess the biggest lesson for me is to fall out of love with my own assumptions. So non-financial matrix became um, the right measures to use at this stage of post-conflict, post-disaster communities. Um, moving forward, that matrix will change um, and we need to be able to adapt to that as well and know when we need to be able to um, understand at which point or which stage of growth we need to change. So thank you very much.